All right, you can turn in your Bibles to the book of Job. Today we'll be getting the big picture of Job. Now, when I was growing up, every year, seemed like every year anyway, in the month of December, our family would watch the animated movie, How the Grinch Stole Christmas. Well, as a result of that, I grew to really love that book and the, and the movie. Originally, by the way, it was a children's book by Dr. Seuss. And it was written in, of course, Dr. Seuss language, rhymed verse, and had great illustrations. I always loved them. Never got tired of hearing the book and watching the movie. And so as a result of developing this, this interest in the book, well, guess what I do with my children now? <laughs> Every year we read Dr. Seuss, How the Grinch Stole Christmas. So we watch the movie as well. And if you're not familiar with the book, the, the story starts with the narrator saying these particular words in the book. Here's what it says. I quote, Every who down in Whoville likes Christmas a lot, but the Grinch who lived just north of Whoville did not. The Grinch hated Christmas, the whole Christmas season. Oh, please don't ask why. No one quite knows the reason. It could be, perhaps, that his shoes were too tight. Or maybe his head wasn't screwed on just right. But I think that the most likely reason of all may have been that his heart was two sizes too small. For those who don't know who the Grinch is, well, let me introduce you to the Grinch. Dare say there might be some who don't know. The Grinch is a bitter cave-dwelling, cat-like creature who lives on, on a mount uh, near Whoville called Mount Crumpet, a 910-meter-high mountain just north of Whoville. His only command, uh, companion is a faithful dog named Max. And from his, his perch up there on the mountain, he can hear the noisy Christmas uh, festivities going down in Whoville, and of course he doesn't like that. And so he's envious of the Who's happiness, and so he ends up making plans to go down on uh, uh, Christmas Eve and go into the town, and he, he means to kind of steal. He wants to take all of the trees and the presents and the food and all that, and he hopes to prevent Christmas from coming. And so after the Grinch steals all the presents and the decorations, and here's what he ends up saying in the book. I quote, Poo-poo to the Who's. They find, they're finding out now that no Christmas is coming. They're just waking up. I know just what they'll do. Their mouths will hang open a minute or two. Then the Who's down in Whoville will all cry, Boo-hoo. Well, if you've read the book, you know what happens next, don't you? He's up there on the mountain, and the narrator tells us what happens to the Who's after they wake up on Christmas morning. They said this, but, but the, this sound wasn't sad. Why, this sound sounded glad. Every who down in Whoville, the tall and the small, was singing without any presence at all. He hadn't stopped Christmas from coming. It came. Somehow or other, it came just the same. Well, one of the things I like about this story is, eventually, the, the Grinch's heart has changed when he realizes that Christmas is more than just gifts. Christmas is more than decorations and being with family. It's, it's more than having wonderful food to eat. 
And toward the end of the story, he, he has one of those light bulb moments. In fact, if you've watched the animated movie, his, his face, his countenance changes. And here's what the narrator says. The Grinch, with his Grinch feet ice cold in the snow, stood puzzling and puzzling. How could it be so? It came without ribbons. It came without tags. It came without packages, boxes, or bags. And he puzzled and puzzled till his puzzler was sore. Then the Grinch thought of something he hadn't before. What if Christmas, he thought, doesn't come from a store? What if Christmas, perhaps, means a little bit more? Well, how does the story end? Well, after the Grinch's heart, literally, in, in, in the book, it grows three sizes larger, and he returns all of the presents and all the decorations, and he comes back into Whoville, and he's warmly welcomed into the community of the Who's. And so you ask, well, what does that wonderful story have to do with the book of Job? Anybody wondering it? That, of course you are. Well, what we see in the book of Job is one of these great cosmic battles taking place between Satan and God. And really, what is at stake in the book of Job here is God's glory. God's glory is at stake. And I'm pleased to announce that Satan was as wrong about Job as the Grinch was wrong about those Who's down in Whoville. He got it wrong. The Grinch got it wrong, didn't he? And Satan gets it wrong here in the book of Job. See, the Grinch thought that if he stole all the toys and the trees and, every, and the treats and everything else, the who's, they're going they're, they're to come out, they're, they're not going to sing, they're not going to celebrate. And he thought he could stop Christmas. But what really happened? Well, to the Grinch's amazement, right? The who's, they sang anyway, even though there's no trees and everything else. And what we see in the book of Job is when... God uses Satan to basically strip him of almost everything. Job keeps singing anyway. In spite of his many tragedies, Job continued to worship God, and he's proving that, that God was right and Satan's wrong. And, and I really love this story. I hope you do too. If you don't, uh, please come to love it. All right? It's a precious book. So let me kind of quickly introduce you to this wonderful book here. Uh, by the way, uh, I hope you're, <laughs> you're not like me. I used to think the book was pronounced Job. It's not Job, it's Job. It's not a manual on employment. In fact, what we have here is, is one of the, the five books of the Old Testament that we call, it, it's a part of the wisdom literature. It's Hebrew poetry. Uh, you'll see it's, in fact, the first book in the wisdom literature, which starts with Job and ends with the Song of Solomon. This is a unique book for several reasons, and let me just share some of these with you quickly. It is a one-of-a-kind book in our Bible for these reasons. Number one, the book of Job contains the longest conversation in the Bible where God himself speaks. In fact, he, for, for four lengthy chapters, from chapter 38 to 41, God's speaking there. Number two, the book of Job contains the longest conversation in the Bible where Satan speaks. You'll see that in chapter 1 and 2. And then for our third reason, the book of Job provides a rare insight into heaven. 
but we do get to learn some wonderful things there as well. And then number four, the book of Job may have been the first inspired book of Scripture that was written. In fact, it, uh, Job may have lived even before Abraham. So <clears throat> many believe it was written even before Genesis. And then number five, the book of Job involves a unique literary structure. It, it, it's very unique in the fact that it has all these things mixed together. It's a mixture of prose and poetry. It's monologue and dialogue. It's really impossible to classify this particular book of the Bible and, and, and put it in a specific genre of literature, but uh, we'll just stick with what has been done in the past and keep it in the wisdom literature. So the book of Job has important wisdom that you and I need. We need this book. It's unique for many reasons. It has wisdom for people who struggle with loss. You ever struggle with loss? We're all going to lose something at some point in our life. Many of us will lose many things. And eventually it might be our minds. So you need to know how to deal with that. Uh, It's wisdom for people who feel like losers. Even if you haven't lost anything and you still feel like it, you you need this book. And Job's wisdom is for us. And even though it's old, it's for our times. It's always relevant. It speaks realistically of suffering. It explores the limits of our understanding. It illustrates compellingly, by the way, our need for God and our need to trust in this God. And it is these three simple ideas that really summarize Job's message to us. And I'll, and I, and I'll give you ahead of time really what, I, what the theme of the, the book is. And then we'll look at these, these individually. So what we're going to see is the, the theme of the book is, is this, that we often suffer... And we often don't understand why we suffer, but we can always trust God in the midst of our suffering. So let's just break that down into three parts, all right? We got three lessons from the book of Job today. Number one, we often suffer. We often suffer. Now let's look at who Job is, because he's the one who's who's suffering here. So look at chapter 1. And in chapter 1 here, in fact, the very first verse, we're introduced to this man named Job, and we see that he is a righteous man. Look at verse 1. Chapter 1, verse 1. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. And that man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. Notice God describes him as someone who's blameless and upright. Somebody who actually feared him. Now, it's important to note because uh, some today, just like Job's friends, think that, that when something bad happens to you, it's a result of the sin in your life. And that idea even carried on into Jesus' day. If you read John chapter 9, there were people who believed that the blind man was, he was suffering and he was blind as a result of his sin. And of course, Jesus said that's not the case. He's blind so that God would be glorified. And so, so even in today, some people think, you know, bad, something bad's happening to you, you know, you know they, well, they might call it something else, they might call it karma or something, but whatever is happening to you, it's a result of, of sin in your life, and you just need to repent. But God describes Job as someone who is blameless, he's upright, he's a righteous man, and when, when he's suffering in this book, it's not because of sin. His friends didn't get it right in that way. 
But not only was Job righteous, he's a wealthy man. And by the way, that's not why he's suffering either. Okay? But look at verse 2. Look at verse 2. There were born to him seven sons and three daughters. He possessed 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 female donkeys, and very many servants, so that his, this man was the greatest of all the people of the East. He's extremely wealthy. I don't think we need to elaborate on that. Uh, even in our modern society, if you had all of that, you, you'd still be considered wealthy. So, Job is a righteous man, he's a wealthy man, but we also see he's a wise man. Look at verse 5. He's a wise man. Look, look at verse 5. And when the days of the feast had run their course, Job would send and consecrate them, and he would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of, of them all, that's his children, for Job said, it may be that my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts, thus Job did continually. Now, we have to remember, this is during patriarchal times. So this is, the law hasn't even been given yet. So he's, he's doing what you know, people before the law would do. He's being, he's being a wise father here. He's looking after his children. So we also see here, according to verse 3, as we read earlier, Job's a great man. God calls him a great man there in verse 3. But what is Job most well known for? What makes Job a legend, if you will? What is he most known for? It's his trials, right? That's what we often, if you ask somebody, what, what do you remember about Job? Inevitably, somebody's going to say, I mean, this guy suffered. But did you know that of all of Job's trials, they're told in eight verses. <laughs> Only eight verses out of all these chapters. And so we need to read about this. Only eight verses. So we need to find out what did Job actually lose. He lost a lot, but let's find specifically what did he lose. Number one, he lost his worldly wealth. Look at verse 13. Verse 13. Now, there was a day when his sons and daughters, that's Job's sons, ten sons and daughters, were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And there came a messenger to Job and said, The oxen were plowing and the donkeys feeding beside them. And the Sabaeans fell upon them and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword. And I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, the fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, The Chaldeans formed three groups and made a raid on the camels and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. Let's just stop there for a moment. Do you, do you get the point that the Bible's making here? This is happening all at once. Just picture yourself standing there. Somebody comes to you with bad news. And as that person is, is talking, somebody else runs up behind him. They're waiting in line to talk to you. And that guy has bad news. And, and then as they're talking, somebody else runs up. One of your servants runs up to you, and they also have bad news. It's just, boom. It's, it's, it's like a boxer. You're standing there boxing, and someone's just punching you in the jaw. And you're trying to recover from that one. Some punches you in the jaw again. Boom. And then they hit you again. That's what's going on here. He's, he's trying to recover from the first, you know, jab in the jaw. And this guy's getting hit and hit and hit. And 
He's losing his worldly wealth. All in, in, within an hour, really. All his wealth taken from him in this very moment. And it's a vivid illustration, really, of the transience of wealth. Wealth is temporary. It can come. It can go quickly. And that's why it's important for us to do, as Jesus says in Matthew 6, to lay up our treasure in heaven and not on this earth. So we see, first of all, he lost his worldly wealth. Number two, Job lost his children. All ten children on the same day. Look at verse 18. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, Your sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And behold, a great wind came across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house, and it fell upon the young people, and they are dead, and I alone have escaped to tell you. It'd be hard enough to lose one child, let alone if you, ladies, just think giving birth to ten children, and then you lose them all in one day. be horrible. So he loses his worldly wealth. He lost all ten children, and as if that's not bad enough, Satan wants more out of God, and so he goes back to God and says, uh, hey, I, I need to do more here. And so in chapter 2, verse 7, God allows Satan to take his health. Look at chapter 2, verse 7. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and struck Job with loathsome sores from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. So Job lost his health. So we see that we often suffer. Now hopefully you'll never go through all the same things that Job did. That's not the point. But when we do suffer, it, it, it hurts. It hurts deeply. And you, you may feel some of the same things that Job did. And so there's a second statement that summarizes Job's message to us. We often don't understand because we don't possess all the facts. We don't understand everything. We don't know everything that God knows. And so, this is really what most of the book is about. Uh, And I want to give you just kind of a quick overview of the book. We don't have time to look, of course, at every chapter. But if you look in chapters 1 through 2, it really tells us who Job is and then what trials he encounters. And then in chapter 3, Job is just pouring out his complaint He's suffering. It's horrible. And then in chapters 4 through 41, it's just really a series of dialogues between Job and his three friends. And then, then, then we come toward the end of the book. There's also dialogues between Job and God. And that's, of course, most of the book is this, these conversations going back and forth. And so each of these dialogues, the speakers keep making the same points. <clears throat> And then in chapter 38, starting in 38, God himself finally enters the discussion here, and he criticizes Job's friends, and and it specifically says in chapter 38, they spoke words without knowledge. They spoke words without knowledge. Now, they said some good things, okay? But just remember, just because something's in the Bible doesn't mean it's true. Okay, you understand, sometimes there's things there that people say that are not actually true. One of those being that Job's suffering is a result of his sin. That wasn't true. Now, some of the things they said about God were true, and, and they're wonderful, and you should read those. And so if you were a zoologist in reading 
you know, chapter 38, 39, you'd really love those chapters. I mean, what God's doing there is showing himself to Job, and God's really looking at the natural world that he's made, and he's pointing Job to that. He can, Job can see that, even though he can't see God himself. And he's telling Job, consider those things that I have made. What can you learn about me from the natural world? Then you come to chapter 40, and I want you to see what God asks Job here. Chapter 40, turn there, please. Job chapter 40. Look at Job 40, and I I want you to see what God asks Job. Verse 1. Job 40, verse 1, And the Lord said to Job, Shall a fault finder contend with the Almighty? He who argues with God, let him answer it. That's a rhetorical question. You don't need to answer it, because you should already know the answer. Shall a fault finder contend with the Almighty? And of course the answer is no. We as fault finders, we're very good at that, by the way, (laughs) It's easy for us to find fault <clears throat> in other people and other things. Maybe not so easy in ourselves. Fault finders are not to contend with the Almighty. And so to, to God's question, Job has a very simple yet wise response here. Look at verse 3. Then Job answered the Lord and said, Behold, I am of small account. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand on my mouth. I have spoken once, and I will not answer twice, but I will proceed no further. And look how God replies in verse 8. Look at verse 8. Here's God's response. Will you even put me in the wrong? Will you condemn me that you may be in the right? Have you an arm like God, and can you thunder with a voice like His? Adorn yourself with majesty and dignity. Clothe yourself with glory and splendor. Pour out the overflowings of your anger and look on everyone who is proud and abase him. That's God's response to Job. And then in the remainder of chapter 40 here, and then going into chapter 41, God really continues instructing Job. He's he's helping Job. He's also helping the... Job's friends, and anybody else who's going to, of course, read this. So look at chapter 41. Chapter 41. Again, we don't have time to read it all, but let's just look at some wonderful verses here. Starting chapter 41, verse 10. Verse 10. Uh, In fact, look at the second part of verse 10. Who then is he who can stand before me? That's God speaking. Who has first given to me that I shall repay him. Whatever is under the whole heaven is mine. And then look at chapter 42. Chapter 42, Job's listened to God speaking to him. And look at Job's response here in chapter 42. Look at verse 3. Actually, let's back up to verse 2. Back up to verse 2. Here's what Job says to the Lord. He says, I know that you can do all things And then no purpose of yours can be thwarted. 
Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me which I did not know. Hear, and I will speak. I will question you, and you make it known to me. I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes." Eventually, the story ends here in chapter 42, and it ends with God telling Job's three friends, hey, you you guys got it wrong. The suffering that Job's going through is not a result of his sin. And eventually, God uh, blesses Job. In fact, he receives double what he had before. And so that really kind of quickly summarizes the book for us. So what about us, though? What about us? Let me just think about us for a moment here. Like Job, we try to understand our suffering. When when we're going through trials and some difficulty in our life, we want to understand it. We often ask why, just like Job. If I remember correctly, it's some 20 times Job asked God, Why? Why is this happening? And sometimes we think that if, if we know what's going on, that's going to somehow alleviate the pain. If you understand it, maybe that's going to help. Maybe, maybe not. And sadly, some people have tried to make sense of their suffering by saying that God can't do anything about it. Yes, my friends, there are people who say that about suffering. God can't do anything about suffering. I'll give you an example. In 1981, Rabbi Harold Kushner wrote a book called When Bad Things Happen to Good People. And if I ever write a book one day, the title of my book might be a takeoff of his, and here's the, here be the title of my book, Why Do Good Things Happen to Bad People? Because the reality is, the Bible tells us there are no good people. God says there are none righteous, there are none good, no, not one. So really, that's, that, is, that, is, that is a horrible title, because it's not accurate to start with. Wrong premise. And so in this horrible book, he essentially said that God would like to do something about our suffering, but he's, he's helpless, his hands are tied. He, he, he has very good intentions, but he can't do any better than he already has. Whoa. That is not what we see in the book of Job here. God's hands are not tied, Satan's hands are tied. Satan's helpless. He has to go and ask God permission to do anything to Job. And and he's only allowed to go so far. He can only do what God allows him to do. Satan's the one who's tied up, not God. God's all-powerful. And so the book of Job clearly here is presenting a God who is sovereign. He is reigning supreme over all of his creation, including the people, including Satan, And so despite that, some people have concluded that God's not really good and God is not just. You know, they they try to, you know, they'll either attack his greatness or his goodness, and sometimes both. And so what we need to do is we we need to agree that God is all-powerful and that God is righteous at the same time. There's also other people who despair. They go through suffering and and I even have a friend who's in the hospital right now who's suffering. He's, he's having a very hard time dealing with it. His heart's 
I dare say, not in the right place. And if your heart's not in the right place and you're meditating on the wrong content, you're going you're gonna to have a hard time dealing with that suffering. So this is why we need to meditate on what the book of Job is telling us now while things aren't so bad in our life. And so there are people who despair because life and suffering don't seem to have any meaning at all. They don't understand what's going on in this world at all. Well, in all these suggestions, notice that we, as human beings, we're the ones who, we are requiring that God give us some sort of an explanation. We want our, our limited understanding to be magnified. We want to be glorified. We want to know what's going on. We think we deserve to know what's going on. And as humans, we must see that there's only a few types of solutions that are available to us. I want to give you an illustration I think might be helpful here as we think about the book of Job. Okay? There's a PowerPoint up here that will give you the visual to hopefully you can understand what I'm trying to say. What, what, you know, what we go through and what Job went through is, is, is a bit like the radio tower over there on the left and the receiver on the right. And then those funny lines in the middle are radio waves. Waves going from the tower to the receiver. And so sometimes we fail to recognize our limitations. And, and so it's, it's like deciding that, hey, you know, I, I turn that little knob or push that button in my car on the, the, the car radio. And hey, it, it doesn't seem to be picking up any radio broadcasts. And and so we, we might conclude that there's no radio stations sending out broadcast. That might be someone's conclusion. Right? You turn, turn the little on button or push the on button on the, the radio in your car. Hey, how come the radios aren't working in New Zealand? Could there possibly be another explanation for why you're not hearing anything coming from your radio? Uh, and the answer is, of course, there could be other explanations. Why would someone assume that the radio towers are not sending out the radio waves? Well, some, some come, come to that conclusion. Is, it, is that the only possible explanation? Well, we have this tendency sometimes when it comes to suffering and trials in our lives. We, we think to ourselves, hey, God made me. Surely he must intend for me to understand everything all of the time, Right? I need to know what's going on in my life all of the time. And if I don't know what's going on in my life, I'm going to throw a little temper tantrum, and I'm going to, I'm going to throw the toys out of the cot. I'm going to stay at my feet, and I'm going to have a little bad attitude. Right? That's the way we are. But how do we know that is what God intends? Well, these are the questions that the book of Job poses for us here. And clearly, this book teaches us that we do not possess all of the facts. Do we? No, of course not. We're not all-knowing. We don't know all the facts and never will. And so within the context of this story here, what is God doing? He's displaying His glory through His creation, through people and animals and the weather. It's it's an amazing display of God's glory. And he's, He's showing Himself in ways that the characters didn't see, and they couldn't possibly understand. 
Job's three friends didn't understand. Job himself didn't fully understand. And by the way, neither could we understand. And and if, if it wasn't for God giving us this precious book, we'd really be in the dark. We would really be in the dark. And we we need to praise God for revealing the truth to us through this book. There's a lot we can learn here. And so here's the point. Here's the point. God's revelation of himself in his word is essential for making sense of our lives. God has chosen to reveal himself in two ways. Through creation, and he reveals himself in the Bible. Okay? So you need to study those. Primarily, you need to study the Bible. You're going to learn far more far more in the Bible. God's word is sufficient. Creation is not. So how has God revealed himself to us? Well, listen closely. He is both powerful and good at the same time. By the way, all of the time. God is always good and God is always great. You've heard those before. Those of you who went through quieting and noisy soul, those of you who did not should go through quieting and noisy soul. Those who've been through quieting and noisy soul need to go through it again. Continue to meditate on the right content. And you'll find that God is always good and always great. He's both good, he's loving, he's, he's all of that at the same time. And so like Job, we can be certain of God's power. Or we can be certain of his goodness, even while remaining mystified by what God is allowing to happen in our lives. You're, you're not going to understand it all. And... And we need to come to the conclusion that's okay. That's okay. It's okay not to understand everything. By the way, that, that shouldn't really surprise us. It shouldn't surprise us. We are limited creatures, after all. We are finite. And so we must assume that there are some things that are really beyond our comprehension. God's incomprehensible. So... To really understand him fully and his ways is impossible for us. And we need to accept that and be okay with that. God has purposes that will always remain hidden to us. So we need to think about this for a moment. Where where we've been so far, okay? Let me just remind you, all right, in case you missed these lessons. So we've seen that we often suffer. And that we often don't understand why we suffer. But there's a third lesson as we go through this. Remember this, my friends. As we go through suffering, we can always trust God. We can always trust God. And we need to trust because of our lack of understanding. So it comes back to the the point that we're we're not going to fully comprehend God. We're not going to understand everything. That's okay. But we can do what Proverbs 3, 5 says... Trust in the Lord with all your heart. That's a key word, all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will make straight your paths. You may not know where you're, you know, all the the bends and the curves and, you know, exactly. You're not going to see the whole path. But God's going to take you down that path. Trust in him. So why did Job worship God? We, we see in this book, Job worships God, and it really makes Satan angry, doesn't it? He doesn't like it. He, he's making this bad assumption at the beginning of the book. In fact, he's telling God at the beginning, 
hey, <clears throat> Job's only worshiping you and serving you because you blessed him. So if you just take all those things away, God, just take them away, you're going to find out who he really is. Well, who was Job? We find he didn't curse God, did he? And his wife tells him, you remember? His wife comes, Job, would you just curse God and die? And he still doesn't do it. So Job's changing circumstances revealed that, after all, he he wasn't worshiping God because of his wealth. He wasn't worshiping God because of his health. He wasn't worshiping God because he's, you know, a, a wonderfully married man and has ten children and no, that's, there's a lesson, by the way, we can learn from this. The true worship of God doesn't depend on our circumstances. You can worship God no matter what your circumstances are. You remember what Paul and Silas did in the book of Acts? They've been beaten. They've been put in the prison. They're in stocks. And on top of that, the Bible says it's midnight. <laughs> And what are they doing? The book of Acts says they're not sitting there grumbling or trying to sleep or whinging and whining and complaining. No, the Bible says they're singing hymns of praise to God. Is it because they're, it, it's a really nice place? Is that why? Is it because they were served a nice steak dinner? Is it because they didn't, well, they didn't really get beaten? It was actually a massage? Is that why? Is that why they're doing that? No, it's not because of wonderful circumstances. They're singing praises to God because God's worthy of praise. It doesn't matter what the circumstances are. So we need to realize true worship of God doesn't depend on our circumstances. True worship occurs within a believer, and it happens by God's grace. It's the grace that God gives to us. Now, what does this mean for us? Well, it means that we... Do not trust God because we're somehow intelligent. We, we, we don't trust God because we're holy. But we can trust God because God is trustworthy. And God's been gracious to show us that. Let me give you another illustration I think might be helpful. How many of you have ever thrown, uh, have flown on an airplane through the Los Angeles, California airport? I'm curious. A couple of you. Okay. So you three would would know, it's an amazing airport. (laughs) It is an amazing airport. Uh, I've been through the Los Angeles airport at least five times myself. And every time I I, I go uh, through there and from there to New Zealand, I'm amazed at the the size of the place, the undertaking of the place. I, I have no desire to be one of those guys sitting up in the air control tower. Now here's a picture from from space of the Los Angeles airport. It is a complex maze of, of concrete and buildings and airplanes and, and who knows what else is there. It is a big undertaking, if you will. I'm also amazed at those, those big Boeing 747 airline jets that can actually get off the ground and fly all the way across the Pacific Ocean. I'm amazed that, you know, they got all this cargo underneath, not just people, but the cargo as well, that they can actually get off the runway. <laughs> but if you sat there too long and tried to analyze, you know, if you're, if you're one of these nitpicking people, you, you could really drive yourself insane thinking, well, I wonder how much cargo they, I wonder if that guy put one piece too many down there. 
so that the airplane's going to go right off the end of the runway and crash. You know, you, you could sit there and worry about things like that, couldn't you? I wonder, I wonder that guy up in the control tower, has he had enough coffee for today? Is he going to get something mixed up? And, and you know, what about the rivets? You, 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 could, you could look at all the rivets in the airplane. You could drive yourself nuts if you wanted to. But if you look at the, uh, the Los Angeles airport, it, it, it really is, the, the sheer size is awesome. It's even bigger than the Auckland airport. It's many terminals, the parking, the runways, all the support roads and so forth. Uh, but, but all combined, it really, it's, it's like a small city in and of itself. Thousands of airplanes are taking off and landing every week. And even though I know that, I, I never go, every time I go to an airport, I'm not sitting there thinking and worrying and wondering how everybody around the airport's doing their job. I'm not thinking about that. I could. I mean, I could get on the airplane and say, just imagine this. This, this would be stupid. But imagine somebody on the airplane getting up and say, wait a minute, stop the plane. Just stop this plane. Right? Can you imagine someone doing that? Yeah, I mean, I could have walked down the cockpit to the cockpit. I could have demanded that the captain give me uh, a copy of the taxi route. I want to know which roads are you going to take. I want to know which direction the wind is coming. What are you planning on doing with this plane? You know, I could demand to do that. And I'd probably get arrested. But, <clears throat> you know, I could ask for a timetable of all the other flights. I want to know where are these flights coming from. I want to know where's my flight in the midst of all these other planes, all right? You know, I could really be obnoxious if I wanted to. Now, I could have done that to satisfy myself. If, and, and maybe, maybe that might, you know, help myself to think I'm safe. Maybe not. But I don't do that. I'll tell you, I don't. I don't do any of that crazy sort of stuff. In fact, I, I sit there and I'm, I'm not really even thinking about it. I'm trusting in God. I'm trusting in God. I'm trusting the controllers that they're doing their job. And if they're not doing their job, well, then I'm really trusting in God. I'm ultimately trusting in God, aren't I? <laughs> because if the controller's not doing his job, I'm dead and I'm, I'm, I'm on my way to heaven. Praise God. So, what am I doing, though? I'm, I'm recognizing the care and the order that, that the, the, this whole situation is, is in. It's, it could be a disastrous operation, if not run well, right? And so, I'm not thinking about all that, though. And every time you go to an airport, I hope you're not either, you're probably just kind of sitting back in your chair, reading a book or whatever. You know, as the plane accelerates, you, you lift off the ground, and, and most of the time everything's sweet. In reality, it's safer to fly than drive your car. But how many times do we want to stop the plane in our lives? We, 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 in, in order, and we want to demand that the, the pilot give us an understanding of all of the variables that you and I are going through. Well, hopefully never. (laughs) Let me ask you this. How much should we trust the true controller, who is God, who makes no errors, has never made an error in his entire existence, and he's always been. He is the one who never sleeps. He never slumbers. He's always in control of every minute detail of his creation. Should he not be trusted? If you can jump on an airplane and, contru- and can trust that the controller up there has had enough coffee to get himself through the day, 
Can you not trust the God who never needs coffee, who never sleeps, who knows everything? Of course we can. In fact, the, the illustration, it, it makes me laugh as I'm thinking about this. It, 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 the contrast is so huge that it's really funny when you think about it. But how many times do we want to stop the plane and we've got to ask questions? We want to know, hey, I need to understand what's happening in my life. Well, my friends, Job never had the luxury of reading the book of Job. Right? <laughs> of course he didn't. He didn't have that luxury. In fact, God never answered his 20 why questions. We get to the end of the book, and Job's asked at least 20, 20 times, why God? God never answers it. Instead, God answered the who question. The who question is, who is God? God answered that question. So Job was only shown the character of God himself. He was shown the work of God. Job was shown God's creation. At times, God does graciously allow us to see how he uses things in our lives, even the difficult things in our lives. And sometimes those difficult uh, situations, well, they're always used for our good. I hope you believe Romans 8.28. If, you, if you're one who loves God, God says that all things work together for good to those who love God. There's a danger in assuming that God has to give us understanding of everything happening in our lives. That is a bad, bad thing to believe. The the truth is, God doesn't have to give us clarity. He does not. So, my friend, if you are presently enduring some season of suffering in your life, it may be that God is sitting in heaven right now, and he's saying to the angels and Whatever, whatever's up there in heaven, he might be saying, have you considered my servant? And then you just fill in your name. Just put your name in there. Take Job out and put your name. Maybe God's saying, have you considered my servant? Do you know what the best reason is for trusting God? There's many reasons we can trust God, right? He's trustworthy, but I, I like what Job says. In Job 19, verse 25, I think this is the best reason to trust God. Job says, I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last He will stand upon the earth. Somehow, Job knew some amazing things about God, yet he had no scripture. It's amazing. God obviously revealed these things to him somehow. But how would Job's Redeemer redeem? How would Job's Redeemer redeem? Because the word redeem, by the way, means to pay the penalty for sin. God paid the penalty for sin. Well, how did that happen? (laughs) Because there was someone who lived more perfectly, more righteous than Job could have ever lived. Redeemer's a capital R. And of course, this individual took upon himself more suffering than Job ever knew. And, of course, his name is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ took Job's place. Jesus Christ took your place some 2,000 years ago on the cross. He suffered more than he deserved. In fact, he didn't deserve to suffer anything. But he was righteous. He's perfect. Job's patience, by the way, amid suffering, was finally meant to point to the perfect righteousness 
and the holy, undeserved suffering of Jesus Christ on the cross. Suffering should drive us to cause to look at the one who suffered in our place. And so through Christ's death on the cross and through his resurrection, what did Christ do? He defeated the power of sin. He bore the penalty of sin, which is death. And then the Bible says that God the Father promised to forgive everybody if they repent of their sins and they put their trust in Christ. And so you can just, like Job does here in Job 19, you can stand with your Redeemer in the end. And so here's the message of Job. The message that Job is teaching us is this. We often suffer. And we often don't understand, but by God's grace, we can always trust God in the midst of our suffering.